For Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose, I'm Ken Bolio. Over the past 70 years, few companies have been as committed to their purpose work as Dr. Bronner's. Boasting the top-selling brand of natural soap in North America, the company dedicates all profits not needed to operate the business to causes it cares deeply about, such as building and scaling ethical production and boosting the minimum wage. Dr. Bronner's is certified fair trade and organic, and the company prides itself on making a positive impact on the planet through regenerative and sustainable business practices. Well known for its unique label, which broadcasts the founders' all one philosophy of life, peace, and tolerance, Dr. Bronner's executes its purpose through six cosmic principles. They include treating employees like family, do right by customers, and fund and fight for what's right. The remarkable evolution of Dr. Bronner's from radical vision to industry leader is brought to life in the book, Honor Thy Label by Garo Lazon, Vice President of Special Operations at the company. Since 2005, Garo has become a pioneer in the movement to socially just and environmentally responsible supply chains. He joins me to discuss the company once described as a for-profit with the DNA of a non-profit. Garo, welcome to Beyond Profit. Thanks for having me, Ken. Really look forward to our conversation. It's great having you here and congratulations on the book. It is an absolutely fabulous read. Appreciate it. Thanks. So uh, my first question is, you know, you, the business model at Dr. Bronner's is billed as constructive capitalism or using profits to benefit people and the planet. Can you just talk a little bit about some of the ways that your company is bringing that approach to life? I guess um, there's a history to the development of that concept. And it, it started more internally, even though the company founder, Emmanuel Bronner, always said, rather external thoughts about it. He, he approached the issue globally and he wasn't going to take anything short of just saving the planet through his hope. Mm-hmm. But that's difficult to do in a small business in the 50s and, and 60s, but he always had these, these aspirations. So I think that's, that's the drive. This is what I think motivates us. And just, just for full transparency, you know, many companies make statements like this, but oftentimes, because their founders had those aspirations, mm-hmm. the reality is that many of them were sold over time, so they were no longer under private control. And whether right. that spirit lived on or not is in the eye of the, the, the beholder. And I think it's important to mention Dr. Bronner's, the family company, has maintained control over its destiny. And thus, when we say that we practice constructive capitalism and do this really in the spirit of Emmanuel Bronner, well, we actually have the standing to do that because the company is still owned by the family and there's no outside investor. I, I think it's, it's important to, to make that point sure. that we can actually say things like this because we have control over how the business is run and how we do practice responsible operational concepts. Historically, it started with internal measures, right? It's just being a responsible company that treats its employees as family. And you know what exactly that means, but when it comes down to it, the the foundation that was laid not by Emmanuel Bronner himself, but rather by his son Jim, or his two sons, Jim and Ralph, and by Jim's wife Trudy, was to have a company 
that focuses on the welfare of their staff. Small mm -hmm. company at the time, up to maybe 20 people. And in the United States, this means something like affordable health care, which is still not the standard. There were also contributions to local charities. This was done in the San Diego County area where the company was located. So I think those were the, the first humble steps towards practicing constructive capitalism, focus on your staff, and then also get involved in charitable activity in your neighborhood, so mm -hmm. to speak. So that was, this is the foundation. Now, how, how do you translate this? Well, the question is always, where is the money going to come from if you want to do that? And that I think is important to point out that all the interesting things that Dr. Bronner's inspiring things we do require money. Internally, you know, when you talk about staff welfare or about my area, which is buying responsibly main raw materials, you can still count this as cost of production. Mm -hmm. As long as you make money, that's great. So yeah. I think we can separate those two issues, things you do internally. And in that respect, what I do is internal, even though it's very external because it involves projects all over the planet. But you need to make money. And that, for Dr. Bronner's, has worked out rather well. We're just a recognized, continuously growing company on average 10, 12% a year over the last 20 some years. Amazing. Very, very, very consistently. And so the question is who gets the money? And there's two things I think that were decided in the 90s that laid the foundation for us also being able to have an external impact. And it's simply the, the, the distribution of the profit we're making. And so there, there's two, I'd mentioned two key elements in the mm -hmm. way we, we manage our, our money. And it's A, there's no distribution of profit to, to, to owners. I, I think it's, it's safe to say. And since the company is profitable, that profit stays somewhere and it could just be absorbed and, you know, you can build reserves. But Dr. Bronner spends some, I think it's about a third of that profit. That's sort of the rule of thumb. Spends right. that on activism and philanthropy. That's, that's how we label it. Now, oftentimes there may not be distribution of profit, but chief executives just pay themselves huge salaries. And that's the other measure we took. There's a cap on executive salaries, and that's five mm -hmm. to one, mm -hmm. meaning that the best paid executive at Dr. Brown's makes no more than five times the salary of the lowest paid permanent employee. So that's a serious cap. Sure. So there's no, there is no loophole in that system where you can siphon off a few million here and there to buy yourself in New York. Or, or things like that. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the external ones, what do we do? Well, mostly we just support a wide range of NGOs on issues that include the care of the disadvantaged, of the homeless. There is the issue of racial inequality where we strategically support NGOs that are active. We focus on helping to raise the minimum wage. Uh, a couple of years ago, this was a big topic. Mm -hmm. David Bronner is very strategic about this. So that, that's one thing that's important to say. You can just throw money at all kinds of charitable issues. But if you're driven to have an impact and actually change things, then you do this strategically. So you look at what NGOs do you want to work with and how do you right. want to spend the money. And you want to develop 
capacity, so to speak, but you also want to get things done. Mm-hmm. As, as they say, and I've, I've watched David and some of our other team members to do this, and we have a, an increasingly well-functioning machine of NGOs we support strategically in order to tackle issues. And I think we've all learned about what hopes we have, what are realistic and which ones right. aren't, and to go about it just as if you were making soap. I think that's an important point, that, that we tackle these things as if it was part of our business, and it shows in the results. Gary, you, you mentioned earlier about just the consistency of the business operations at Dr. Bronner's. And so, you know, meaning and purpose have been part of your DNA since the founding, as I said, over 70 years ago. So for those brands that may be new to the purpose journey, uh, wanting to become act- activists, what advice do you have for them? We're asked this quite a bit now. The book has helped. And we're rather visible in our activities to develop a responsible supply chain. And so Mm -hmm. small companies often ask us, well, how can we start what you do? You've got the money to take these steps. For us, we have 50 ingredients, small volumes. And how can we, you know, introduce meaning and purpose? And I I think the the only advice you have is it's, it's try it. It starts small mm-hmm. and pick for a couple, pick a couple of issues where you actually believe you can have a meaningful impact. And that impact, it's nice if that's related to your business, but that's tough. In our case, it's you make soap, it's made from agricultural raw materials. It's a no-brainer to look at where do they come from. Mm-hmm. It's different with other companies. For instance, if you're in tech, it's tricky. Where exactly do you engage? But I think it's a matter of imagination to just think about where do we have an opportunity with the, the staff we have and the sure. resources, where can you have an impact and just take that and go with that rather than having lofty ideas. And it's dangerous because Emmanuel had these lofty ideas, but he started 80 years ago and he was going to save the world, but it took him, he didn't see it, you know, come to fruition. Sure. grandsons now do so it took him 50 years but so he had these ideas but maybe times are running too fast so you can't do that so much it's always nice to have that vision that you want to save the planet but it's an, it's much more practical to start small and focus on what you want to do so this could be um if you have in, uh, agricultural ingredients you just pick one or two of them and get close to your suppliers and try to have a meaningful impact on the ground and meaningful meaning engage so uh, sourcing materials is a big one or issue of plastic. Just be creative about what you can right. do to change that. But mm-hmm. also be realistic about what you can achieve. And then the other, the other concern I always have with company in our space, you know, say resist the temptation to oversell what you do. It's very common. That's great advice. And I would assume, hearkening back to what you said earlier, the value of partnerships that you know, if you're not expert in a certain field, to lean on these NGOs to help you, even if it's even if you're starting small, I would assume that that that's still the case. It's it's a very important aspect. Is just to to, to look for partners, and there, I think we've. This is the, the one of the early things that impressed me about Dr. Bronner is to see is how how David Bronner he teamed up with competitors or other companies in the space. Mm-hmm. So. 
you know, in 2000, the, the quote hemp industry, you know, mostly small to medium sized companies that tried to work with industrial hemp food and fiber products. They were tiny. The US DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, tried to ban hemp foods on very shaky grounds and just in its usual rogue way. And I, I was part of that battle with David. This is, this is how we know. And watching David to just form alliances with other companies mm -hmm. is what, what struck me. And some of these companies were, you know, some were great, some were not so great. But I always thought this idea of just forming coalitions, that's what the big guys do, yeah. right? This sure. is what the oil industry does. And he, he did this and, and just maneuvered and got people to collaborate because there was something to gain. So it's essentially basic lo lobbying. It's a concept of joining forces and lobbying. And he did this really early on, just beyond the interest of his own company, where in fact, Dr. Rons wasn't even affected by that ban because it was the use of hemp oil and soap. But David saw an opportunity to just gather forces and march to DC, so to speak. And that, mm -hmm. uh, that was a real interesting lesson for me to just watch how he did this. this just join sure. forces. And then he's done the same with, with NGOs. We're suitable. Not always. Right. Sometimes it's good to work with private sector. Sometimes you want to find NGOs. Mm -hmm. to work with. In your book, it may not be a full chapter, but um, we talk about Michael Bronner, who leads the international development at Dr. Bronner's. And, and he said he believes that many companies are either all product or all soul. And that can create a business imbalance. I'm hoping that you can elaborate a bit on that point and explain how you're striking that balance, especially in the work that you do, Gero. It's, I think it, it's historical. History would explain this. So Emmanuel started out with all soul, and he was lucky enough, I think, that he was in the zeitgeist back mm -hmm. in, in, in the 60s. I think this is what helped him just grow. He, he wasn't the... I'd say the most talented business person. So he, he struck that balance, but he was helped along by the counterculture in, in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. And so historically, we focused highly on soul, but we also always had good soul. And, and that was naturally, everybody knew, unless we continue making good soap, we're going to lose that business. Right? So mm -hmm. you, you were forced. So that balance almost came as a gift. So with many other companies, either they're already established and are performing well, and then that's mostly soap, so to speak, and then the soul is an afterthought. Mm -hmm. Or it may be the other way around, that startups, they start because they want to save the world, and it's mostly soul. Then, the, then to become economically successful is a real challenge. And oftentimes what you find with companies in our space is that once they get to a certain point, they have to sell, or in fact, they're often designed mm -hmm. to be sold. So that, that natural combination between soap and, and soul is, is a real unique combination because the luck we had is just to start out with soul and then having a tailwind that makes you successful. Plus, you have a great product that Emmanuel brought with him in his backpack from Germany, so to speak, when he came here in, in 29, 1929. So it's, it's a very fortunate combination when you have the resources and a great product right. early on, plus, plus the soul. And that is, is usually 
not as balanced. I think actually, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. I think that that balance is really a, a big part of our success, but much of it is pure luck. Piero, when you're talking about soul, I assume you mean more than you know the corporate values that you're talking about the DNA, the purpose of the company. Is that correct? So it's like a deeper it's, meaning. Yeah, it's 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 deeper. It's it's not it's not just um, the 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 vision and mission statement. It's really, I'd say, how things are done. Yeah, it's just how you interact. I think with other humans. This mm -hmm. is really what I've taken away also sure. from my own work. It's not so much structural and and lofty goals on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It's really, first and foremost, it's how you interact and deal with other, with other humans. On, honestly, it's really, I've, I've learned this. It just, and you can't do it any other way if you work mm -hmm. in foreign countries. It comes down to interacting with people. It's completely trivial. Everyone knows this, but many people forget. So the soul, right. to me, means really looking at the people you affect and deal with and, and treat them fair. And that's just, that's an intrinsic motivation, I, I believe, that, mm. that drives our, our management and has trickled down. And now a quick break. Hey there, Beyond Profit listener. Are you looking for more ways to become smarter about purposeful marketing? Then allow me to introduce you to the ANA Center for Brand Purpose. The center offers playbooks, articles, events, a committee, training, and much more, all created to help you bring your brand's purpose to life. You can learn more about all the resources available by visiting ana.net slash brand purpose. Now, back to the show. So you joined Dr. Bronner's in 2005, and uh, you write in your book that you became fascinated with the family's history right then and there. In your book, you write, my involvement in the Bronner's rediscovery of their German roots and the return of the brand to the old country has had a strong emotional and intellectual impact on my life. I mean, you devote a whole chapter to this. Can you just tell me how, you know, talk about the impact that it's had? Yeah, it, it was on, on two levels. You know, I had been, I was born in 55, and my, my dad was a publisher, and I knew about the Holocaust, you know, ever since I turned eight or nine. I, I read William Shara's Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, mm -hmm. and my dad, there, there was no censorship, right? I, I was able to read what I wanted. I had a rather good idea of the facts, the gruesome facts of what the, the Nazis did. One problem was there were no Jews in Germany. When I grew up, I did not meet knowingly a single Jewish person because most of them had left. Those were smart enough. And the rest was somewhat secluded, I, I would say. So I was aware of it, and I had just, just a very strong emotional connection to that. But I didn't really know what. This, this meant in reality, you know, how Jewish families were affected by mm -hmm. the Holocaust. And once, oh, this was just two years into my tenure at Dr. Bronner's, I, I organized the first trip with David and, and family and, collabor and, and colleagues to Germany to visit the two places that the company came from, Alpheim and, and Heilbronn. And then we met people who knew part of the, the, the tragedy firsthand. And it, mm -hmm. all this took a few years and, and discussions and meetings and readings, and it just, it just dawns on you over years how families were affected, what it actually meant to be a Jewish family in mm -hmm. Germany starting in 33, where things tightened for the next five, six, seven years. 
until you were no longer able to leave. And this is what happened to the great grandparents of Mike and, and David. And to just read the accounts of that experience has just a very different impact than just knowing in theory what the Holocaust meant, where it's all about numbers mostly and, and, right. and, and mass uh, killings of, of people. So to me, just connecting to the fate of people that I came to know through records or others and who described that had a huge impact um, on, on me. And then connected to that is Emmanuel's story and just the account of, of how he overcame adversity and animosity and took this to the higher level. So it's both. It's the gruesomeness yep. of what actually happened, but also the the recognition that this can lay the groundwork for something very inspired. And, and that's mm -hmm. what Dr. Barnes is, in, in all honesty. This is, it, it's him who ultimately saw the vision and that this was based on what he saw happen to his parents, which whom they, they tried here and his sisters tried to save, and they couldn't. They slipped away at the last moment, right? That's a, just a brutal story. Mm -hmm. But he took that ultimately into something good. And actually, both of his sisters did the same in different ways. Yeah. His um, sister Louise became a, a professor, University of, um, of Massachusetts. And just what she did, the reestablishment of connections between Americans and Germans, is just another example. So all three of them did this ultimately. They didn't say, screw Germany. We're never going to talk to any more yeah. German. No, it's yeah. quite the opposite. They kept coming back, for instance, and I was able to explore this. So those were just examples of how you overcome division, stupidity, brutality. So those were the two things right, that, right. that really affected me deeply on a personal level. Clearly, I mean, it's, it's coming through uh, loud and clear. So in addition to affecting you on a personal level, I would assume it really, that experience lit a fire under you you know, uh, for the rest of your career that you've been working at Dr. Bronner's? It sure has. And it's the combination really of, of that foundation at Dr. Bronner's plus what I was supposed to do in the first place, which is mm -hmm. to build vertically integrated projects that started all with farmers that had to be converted to organic practices then set up factories. And they are, there's medium-sized Oil mills or factories, you know, employing 200, 300 people, not so bad. It's mm -hmm. almost as many as, as work for Dr. Bronner's. And then on the ground, just to help improve the conditions in, in the communities where we buy. And it's not an overstatement to say that the projects we run, we build, we know all the farmers. Not me personally, often because by now in some, there's 2,500 farmers. The teams we have on the ground, right? They're, they're always locals. So there's no permanent white guys on the ground, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But myself and my, my team were, were eight people, one African person. Now we support these projects, but the guys on the ground are always local. And so I wouldn't always know all the farmers, but I know quite a few. But ultimately, our systems, those companies yeah. belong to us or they're very closely related. So we know the people we affect and to watch what kind of impact you can have through commercial activities was mind-boggling 
for me, I'm, I'm an old lefty, right? So I always thought, you know, this got to come from somewhere else. This better be done by the government. So my faith in governments has just slightly declined over the last mm-hmm. decades. There's a, a desperate need for it, but there's a huge space for the private sector to engage. So that was what drove me is to be able to make a change in developing countries and under privileged groups. And that's that's always been my dream ever since mm-hmm. I was a kid. It just worked out a little differently. So it's a combination of having the background and support from Dr. Browns and being able to do things socially and ecologically on the ground is, is what's become my driver. You, you mentioned your uh, psychedelic drugs. You had mentioned that previously. Um, and you talk about your experiences with those drugs. And it's prepared you for your work at Dr. Browns. How so? Well, uh, I... I'd say I thought about this a little bit and how can one simplify, but I think it comes to, I think it comes down to openness. I believe what my early use of, of cannabis and then some LSD and, and mind you, I was never a large scale user. I, I really don't like being stoned during the day, mm-hmm. for example, and I still don't. So it was an evening drug for me or the occasional LSD trip, but I think what it did overall is it just opened. It just opened me. You just see things that you're not used to, and you think they're funny when you're 16, and a little later you think they have some meaning. And I believe it's that openness that that helped me prepare for the work I did. Because once you start a project, say setting up a coconut oil project in Sri Lanka, you realize that conditions on the ground are not exactly what you thought. So fair trade, for instance. Mm-hmm. is a rather complex thing to implement and you try to take your your nice you know liberal western ideas to a developing country with very different settings so you have to adjust your ideas really fast if you're committed to an impact you better give up on dogmatism really fast and i believe that the the use of psychedelic has just helped me Sometimes took a long time, sometimes with individuals, you know, one can be really stubborn. So openness may take eight years to develop. But it, I think really this is, this is the, 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 the denominator ultimately is openness and just accept reality. I think accept, acknowledge reality and try to work with it. A little bit of meditation sure hasn't hurt either, but I, sure. I believe that the, the psychedelics were a very strong element in that. Mm-hmm. So openness, are you referring also to your advocacy work? Like that that's helped influence your advocacy efforts? It, it has. And, and again, yes, it's openness to also realizing what problems there are with the intent to change them. And for that, you do need, you yeah. do need openness. And that informs where you want to go. I, I think David could tell you much more about this because I, I believe He's also very much driven by that. It's the advocacy work driven out of the recognition as to what he thinks or I think is wrong or could be improved. In, in our case, we try to be informed actually about this. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, it's a combination of the openness, yeah. but also we're both scientifically minded and many others are. And so you just try to base your solution on a, a semi-appropriate analysis yeah. of a problem and you try to communicate this as well as accurate as you can. So Gary, you spend a good portion of your book, several chapters on how the company 
revamped its sourcing and production practices as part of its commitment to small farmers and entrepreneurs. I'm wondering if you can share a recent example because we don't, we don't have the time to go through all of them and there yeah. are many, but maybe something recently. There's just, this is just an ongoing stream right. of things happening at each project. So, mm -hmm. you know, one makes palm oil um, in Ghana. This was what we set out to do. Then by serendipity, we fell into cocoa because it was grown next door. Right. And then right. people started asking, do you have uh, organic cocoa beans? We didn't. It was a long Trip. And then in the end, Dr. Brown said, you know what? I think you're growing regenerative cocoa beans. Maybe we should do a chocolate. Right? So this, this was just one of the really interesting, completely non-plant activities there. And that, that project in Ghana, Surrender Palm, is a great example of this because we almost by accident fell into starting to recycle, or to first collect and recycle plastic waste, which is a mess. In many mm -hmm. developing countries, there's no organized waste collection. And we thought it would be really nice to have Assum, our town in Ghana, look a little cleaner. So lo and behold, we just started planning a collection project that, with the goal to also recycle what was collected because just collecting it and putting it in a poorly maintained landfill is not the greatest idea. So that just got us into the waste management um, business and it's really fascinating. So there's two things. Dr. Braunis wants to offset its plastic footprint, mm -hmm. the source reduction. He's thinking of shifting some of the packaging to non-plastic. Also, is looking at refilling, but there'll be still quite a residue of plastic to be offset. And we plan on doing this by collecting the waste in in Ghana, and then there's a recycling industry emerging, and then feeding that into the industry. And one application that fascinates me is the use of plastic as an additive to asphalt in road making. Hmm. So there's been research to show that you could put about 15% of low-grade plastic into asphalt, actually improve the properties of the asphalt, and take the, the, the problem away. It's just a one great way. It's not, the, right. it's, it's not the, the solution for all problems, but it's one great after-the-fact way to Recycle this. So right now we're planning to build a road kilometer in, in Ghana with our own plastic and just are going to create quite a splash about it just to draw the world's attention to the fact that there is one outlet. It's not the solution to everything, but it's a yes. really nice one for a couple. Amazing. Just absolutely amazing. Your journey that you've been on. Uh, another interesting point in your book that you made was um, you, you believe it's critical to apply fair trade principles to the work environment. So how does that philosophy manifest itself internally? That's really where the foundation is of, of what Dr. Mm -hmm. Bronas started with, which is treats, well, compensation for sure, healthcare, all, all these issues, they're first and foremost. But then mm -hmm. one of the things that's always impressed me at Dr. Bronner's is th th there's two things. It's the treatment with respect is something, and it, it, it stuns you. Because in contrast, management and treatment with respect in some of the countries you work in is not the highest priority. So when, when I started out in Sri Lanka, right? So the, the behavior, the connections between top and bottom or supervisor and supervised reminded me more like what it might have been in the US or in Germany in the 50s, you know, mm -hmm. you, you know relatively Harsh, often insensitive, sexual misconduct will, will leave 
out that that's special, but just even in general, the visible stuff that's 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 obvious. And in contrast, I always found just the atmosphere at Dr. Braun's much more collegial. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there were people who didn't perform or didn't behave, but just even the the way how that was dealt with, I always thought, wow, this is really sensitive. And there is another aspect was the, the mobility that was offered to people. Now you can do that in a growing company, right? right. Because you can move people up. That's mm-hmm. one thing. That's a theme I've watched at Dr. Bronner's so many of the staff, there's low all turnover is pretty low at, at Dr. Braun. So many of these people I've come to know better over the last 15 some years. And just seeing the move around from a low-level position into a management position. And that's the same that's for for many women of um, Mexican origin. Yeah, I, I'd say I've watched that a lot. That mm-hmm. entire families moved up, but that was that was performance-based too, yep. right? They had to perform as supervisors. So it, it was based on merits, but there were opportunities given for, for people to advance. And I, I think those are critical aspects of fair trade in a Western company is that mm-hmm. you deal with your staff as if it was family. That sounds a little corny, but in a way, that's the principle. And, you know, family doesn't mean you're always nice, right? You can, you can argue with your brother until the, the, the sure. clothes come home as, as well. But I think just the attitude of respecting the others, no matter what their color of skin or their gender is or their origin. And that I found present at Dr. Braun's. And it's, it was really interesting that Michael Milam, our uh, chief of operations, when I wrote this book, he, he picked up on this fair trade concept. He went to visit Sri Lanka mm-hmm. once, and then we started arguing, not, not arguing so much, but he said, well, you know, this is what we try to apply in the United States as well. Fair trade is not a concept you just want to use in tropical countries. That's something mm-hmm. that belongs at the workplace in the United States as well. And that, that's, they, he picked up on this, actually, the whole family does, but in a way, it was already there. It's just no more stated obviously so i i really think maybe the other way around what i've tried to do in our projects in tropical countries i actually tried to take the spirit that i've seen operate at dr Vaughan's and implement this in the pro in a way those projects are i wouldn't say mirror image that would be a really really bad comparison but some of the ideas that we practice at dr Bronner's, they believe we've been able to instill those in the people and the teams on the ground. I, I think this is a very strong driver. Yeah. So yeah. nobody in Ghana tries to promote the use of psychedelics for psychotherapy. This would just be completely unsuitable in the Ghanaian environment. Same in Sri Lanka. So what you try to do is you take the ideas we have and try to use them in the local context. And I, I'd say... We've been super lucky that the four main projects we have, they're all led now by people who share our idea of using business for good. You've traveled, as I said, you've traveled all over the world. You've had these amazing experiences that you've talked about. Um, What are some of the, would you say, key lessons that you've learned along the way that others can take to heart who are listening to this podcast? It's 
I, I had to think about this, this Ken, and unfortunately, the answer, uh, again, it's, it's pretty tried. I, I, I don't think it's so revolutionary. Yes, there was a lot of detailed learnings that we made, such as fair trade. It's not just about paying people a little more. It's about fair treatment. And for farmers, it's about improving the fertility of their soil. That, that's one key learning. We had no idea when we started what fair trade and organic really means. And this ultimately created our involvement in the, the regenerative movement. But I found that people all over the planet really aren't all that different. It, even with very different backgrounds, most people laugh about the same jokes, if they share your sense of humor, of course. Sure. But that, that's, that's pretty international. And then one key thing I've learned, and we just talked about it, this, this intrinsic motivation of people to do good is, is a superpower that you, you just have to figure out how to unleash it. And I had to do this because I don't see my staff much, right? But I, I don't believe in, in just keeping timesheets completely un, unfeasible. They work all over the place. Yeah. So unless they have intrinsic motivation and believe that what you do is good, it, it's really difficult to keep people motivated. And so the power of intrinsic motivation now written about in management journals is pretty trivial. Right? Mm -hmm. it's just, you know, people need to know that what they do has an impact. It makes them feel good. And that's how they're responsible. It doesn't work on everybody. Yeah. Right? There's people who are completely resistant to that. And they may become scoundrels, well, you may have to part ways at some point, but for the most part, intrinsic motivation is a strong driver. And then one other thing that I think is important to keep in mind when you work international is just be careful when trying to impose your woke ideas on people in other cultures. Mm. And I mean, just don't think the way we want to fix things here with the that's good or bad, even in this context. But just yeah. don't just take this abroad and think that's exactly what people need to do because they may not even be aware of the issues. And so mm -hmm. the, the, the issue of racial equality, it, it just, it's really, it's not funny, right? But if you were in Africa, then the, the issue of discrimination just does not run along the lines of the color of your skin because everybody's black. Right? So you have to be much more sensitive to look at who is discriminated by whom and for what reason and where do you want to engage, right? It just right. May, may sound offensive, but it, it's not. If you just look at the situation and try to figure out what's wrong here or what is it you want to improve and don't take your smart ideas from back home and think you have to just have to impose them right. on, on locals. You just look at what's there. Just, and that's, again, with the openness. Sure. comes in, in pretty handy. Well, that's terrific advice. Gerald, thank you so much and uh, for joining me on, on Beyond Profit. Again, congratulations on your book. Thanks so much, Ken. This was this was a, a great and, and inspiring discussion to have. Yes, it was. Absolutely. To purchase a copy of Honor Thy Label, please visit shop.drbronner.com. That's shop.drbronner.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.